0: Open your Bible to uh, Romans chapter 10, Romans 10, it's been uh, 10 weeks since we said anything about Romans, um, so I think I forgot how to do this, um, uh, Romans 10, I don't know how many of you I've met in the last, I don't know, uh, handful of weeks that are new to redemption, Gilbert and, uh, or new to redemption, and you've kind of missed the, the first nine chapters of, of our study together, and... Uh, and I wrestled with, to be honest with you, I sat down on Thursday to write out some notes and I got six pages in I thought, I, I can't do all this review, will not get to Romans 10. So I threw all that away and started over. And uh, that means that maybe if you're interested in more of what Romans says, you might go online and, and check out some of the, the last 15 months of us teaching through Romans if you've got an interest in that. But uh, we are now starting this and, and to drive all the way to Advent and finish the book of Romans in uh, November. So that's, that's where we're at today. Um, most theologians, most people who actually read the scriptures would say that Romans is the greatest letter ever written. And I, I tend to agree with that. Um, because in the book of Romans is the most concise depiction of the good news that God saves sinners of any place in the world. Okay, The reality, um, and, and all the gory detail, by the way, because it starts in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against us who exchange the truth for a lie. We're in a, we're in a pickle right there, and yet uh, the, he buries us with, with uh, the judgment in uh, chapter 3 that says we're all sinners, every one of us. No one does anything good. But right there in the middle of chapter 3, but God. God arrives in the person of Jesus Christ by faith. Those who trust in him can get a righteousness not of their own and go free from the condemnation of sin. That's the wonderful good news paragraph of, of Romans. Chapter 8 happens to be my favorite chapter, Um, and I'm saying this only because of how it starts. Think about this. Therefore, after all that stuff, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? I'm I'm glad to see you guys smiling because the 8.30 and 9.30 didn't even look at me, okay? No (laughs) condemnation, right? God's not going to bring it up. He's not going to remember it anymore. He's not going to use it against his people. No judgment for God's people, amen? Absolutely. And chapter 8 is, is right after that wonderful declaration. It begins to talk about the fact that God is doing a work in us through the Holy Spirit that means that we will not suffer defeat in this life. That Satan's sin, and death have been dealt a, a death blow, and the Holy Spirit has now empowered us. He is, he is growing us and transforming us. He intercedes for us. He works even the bad things for the good, for our good and his glory. All of that wrapped up in chapter 8, and then he finishes with that there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it can't get better than that. That's the pinnacle. That's the mountain of the, of the story of God's grace for, for, for sinners. But there is a question um, that surfaces after those wonderful eight chapters, and that is for those Jewish readers who hear all those things, who ponder whether the promises of God could be trusted, who simply look at their, their people and seeing how they've turned their back on God and rejected the Messiah. And now wonder, wonder, really, ultimately, if, if I'm supposed to believe that promise, That there is no condemnation, no separation, no defeat for God's people. If if it could be said that God dropped his promises to his people, then how do you know that one's true? How can you trust that these things are certain and permanent and can't be taken if God doesn't deliver on all of his promises, right? And so that's the question that Paul deals with in in chapter chapter 9, ultimately. And Paul responds to that uh, question by clarifying who God's people are. Because Israel thought bloodline. They thought the race. And Paul says, no, you're thinking, it, you're thinking about it all wrong, okay? He says in, in verse 6 of chapter 9, God didn't fail his people because not all Israel is Israel. God's decision was for a spiritual people. He is keeping his promise to his kids, all of which he will keep his promise. In fact, that's why he goes on in chapter 9 to define how God does save. And he brings up these deep discussions about God's election and predestination for the saints. That God predestined those he will save. By his own good pleasure and for his own choice, he grants mercy to whom he grants mercy. And compassion on whom he grants compassion. That's chapter 9. And there's some deep, deep things in there. And if that's the first time you've heard things like that, then go back online and and listen to those two messages in in Romans chapter 9. But ultimately, God chooses a people and elects a people for his own pleasure. Abraham, you, and every believer in between is saved by God's decision. Right? That's what Romans 9 says. Today we pick up chapter 10, and it deals with what I call the other side to the, the election discussion. And that is this this phrase, man's responsibility. And somewhere in there, I know sparks just flew off in your head, okay? Because when you get your mind even close to God being sovereign, and he just expands and you tip over from the weight of his authority in your life, then there's somebody to come in and say, and by the way, you're responsible. It just kind of blows your mind. And yet, the scripture teaches both. God is both sovereign and he will hold you accountable for the decisions you make about Jesus. Man is sovereign over election in salvation, and we are responsible. It's, uh, it's not unlike other par- you know, paradoxes you see in Scripture. For instance, whenever we go to try to define the Trinity, God, right? There is one God, three persons. It says it, I believe it, I don't know how to define it. That's what it says. And yet therein lies a challenge, just like it does when we get done with chapter 9, and saying he's in charge of it all. He grants mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whomever he wants to. And yet here in chapter 10, it's like an offering, if you will, if you'll you'll receive, if you'll believe, if you'll confess him as Lord. And and it's both. And I think it's important to to preach this, not just simply because the Bible says it, but because of the uh, conflict and probably the neglect that happens if you take an extreme position, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Um, Kent Hughes put it in this kind of phrase. He says, it's possible to get just enough of the vertical theology of chapter 9 to make us horizontally irresponsible. Does that help? Maybe not. Maybe, let me help you with this. Okay. For, for example, um, I've met believers who, and, and I love it too, so don't get me wrong, who fall so in love with this particular doctrine of sovereignty that they're willing to neglect other commands of Scripture. So, for instance, I've heard people go so far as to say, why pray? God's sovereign? Don't pray. Other than the fact that the Bible said to pray, and you have not because you asked not, and Jesus prayed. You get to forget all that stuff if you're just going to neglect prayer. And yet, that's the accusation for people who go so hardcore into sovereignty, they stop believing that God does something with prayer. Or evangelism. Why bother sharing your faith if God elects whom he wills to salvation? No one's going to be lost. God doesn't lose his own. Just go ahead and neglect the command to be salt and light and to go into the world and preach the gospel. And yet it happens. I know it sounds absurd, but it happens. And those are well-meaning people who have gotten a particular part of Romans 9 without the totality of what the scripture says. And then I've run into people, unbelievers, people by their own decision have rejected this claim of Christ who will hear something about God, God electing or predestining saints uh, unto salvation and will use that to stiff arm the discussion of the gospel, right? They'll they'll say things like, um, I refuse to believe that because after all, you know you said I can do nothing about it. So they just kind of remain in their hardened unbelief. And the reality of it is that exposes one of our issues. That's a human nature right there just to make excuses and blame God for everything. God, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to evangelize, because you're going to do it. Well, I don't have to trust in Christ, I don't have to make a decision, I don't have to, have to wrestle with that truth, because after all, I, I can't, and e- either one is, is kind of wrong. Now, I'm going to use an illustration, the 8 o'clock got, and I'm going to risk it here, okay? Do you know who Will Rogers is? Okay, some of you do, that's good. Um, Will Rogers was a humorist, a, uh, a writer, an actor, a singer from 20s, 30s, when he was popular. And he's kind of got a good way of synthesizing things, and he kind of tried to describe America, and he did it this way. And it's not unique to America, it's unique to mankind, but he says that that there are two eras in America the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Okay? Now, I I use that, that phrase on my son. I go, You know what it means to pass the buck? He goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. It just means to shirk responsibility, to push it off on somebody else. It's not your fault. It's not uniquely American. It's uniquely sinful. It's in the heart of every man to say God's responsible, that he's doing it, that it's his, his problem, not my problem, or somebody else's problem, not, not my problem. Chapter 10 removes the excuses. Chapter 10 takes away the tendency to pass the buck, and it talks about responsibility, okay? And Paul does it with some answering some imposed questions, okay? And that is questions like this what salvation isn't, what salvation is, and who is it for, okay? Those are the questions we're going to deal with in these nine verses, starting in verse 5 of chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen if you don't have it, but let's read this together and then we'll pray. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. It couldn't get more clearer for us, God, the simplicity of the gospel to confess and believe your word. And yet there's still an inability to understand it. So we're praying right now for your Holy Spirit to intercede this time and, and to, um, to remind us of these truths or maybe reveal these truths for the first time to us. We declare our dependency. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I go to bed at between 7 and 8 on Saturday nights, okay, because I get up so early on Sunday morning. And uh, sometimes I can just fall asleep right away, and sometimes I just sit there. Do you know what I'm saying? And about 10 o'clock last night, I was up um, staring at the ceiling, and I was praying for you. And I thought, this, this message is going to seem really, really weird to a bo- whole bunch of people who think the issue of salvation is settled, okay, One to the church who's gathered because of Jesus, okay, we're just reminding ourselves of old things we have already professed, but here's what I'm convicted by. The reality of it is, if you're gonna keep your distance from God, a great place to do it is in church. To think that morality or attendance or dropping money in the bucket or or taking your kids to, to children's ministry or just being good and moral and sincere that somehow God's gotta look at you and say, you know what, because you're so special, because you do those things, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cut you some slack. And, and, and I guess I'm convicted that when we get to places, it seems so obvious to us that we've already got those covered, we understand them, and we have a tendency to just rush through them. I prayed last night that we wouldn't rush through it and that maybe some of you who are severely churched but have yet to confront Christ, that maybe he'd stop you today and for the first time you'd hear about Jesus who saves. And then I prayed for another group of you and uh, this happens a lot, and that is that there are people who come, invitations, friends. I drove by, saw the sign. I have no idea what you're all about. And for you, Jesus is a historical figure, but you have not wrestled with what he says about you or what he offers to you. And for you, I pray that God would interrupt you this morning, and you would hear about Christ and, and believe and receive. So that was my prayer, and I was really convinced that he would do that for some. So uh, let's dig in and, and see... Uh, What he has to say. In verses, we're going to break this up in three sections, verses 5 through 8, 9 and 10, and then 11 through 13. But the imposed question that we got to to wrestle with is is, uh, Paul talking about responsibility by telling us what we can't do, what salvation isn't. And here's what it isn't. It isn't being good enough, okay? Look at verse 5 again. And I'm going to kind of intersect in this thing with my own paraphrase. So, so listen, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So Moses writes about an ability to climb your way out of your pit by this righteous working of the law, okay? That the person who does the commandments or the person who chooses righteousness by the law, all he's got to do, at the end of it, is live by them, okay? So here's the question. How good do you have to be to be saved? You have to be pretty good, really good. <laughs> how, how good? Better, better than others? Here's what, here's what Paul says in verse 5. No, you got to be perfect. If, if you're choosing law or morality or sincerity or religion to fix the problem of sin, great, great. All you got to do is everything right all the time and never drop the ball in perfection. That's the only option when it comes to the law is keep it, keep it all. Now, when I say perfection, we have, to def- we have to deal with that, too, because most people hear these standards of God and immediately tra- and translate it to something like, you no, know, what he's talking about there is just, just close. Like, he doesn't expect perfection because we know no one's perfect. He expects that we're sincere or we're, or we're close or we're better than others. And... Uh, You know that's foolish, right? Maybe this is the first time you've heard it, but Jesus, the Son of God, first words out of his preaching mouth were these words. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And he goes on a series of statements to confront the the tendency of man to be close enough. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. I've never murdered anybody. Am I good to go? And Jesus says, well, if you hate, if you're angry, Well, I do that. I'm a professional hater. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But here's what we've learned from Christ's preaching. That if you look at anybody other than your spouse in a sexual way, you've committed adultery in your heart. Who hasn't broken that? If you fall in love or serve anything other than God himself as preeminent in your life, it's idolatry. It's idol worship. Who hasn't done that? And here's the point the point of it is it isn't just close if you want to choose to work your way out of your problem then you have never failed you can never fail and you need to be perfect now there's a story that Jesus shared or there's a story in Mark chapter 10 of an encounter between a a man that we call the rich young ruler in Mark 10 that illustrates this really well this rich young ruler um, was seeing Jesus in the midst of his popularity and ministry. Everyone was coming to him. He was opening blind eyes and, and healing the sick and making lepers walk uh, or, or clean and making crippled people walk. And uh, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember this story? And Jesus says to him, okay, let's just start here. And he goes right to the the commandments. He goes to the law and says, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, blah, blah, blah. Do it all. And his response was, I've always done that. I've, I've always kept those commandments. And Jesus doesn't stop to correct his, his, you know, confusion. He just simply says, okay, here's one other thing you can do then. Sell everything you have. Give it away. Come and follow me. And the text doesn't tell us the time between how this man or when this man responded and what Jesus said, but my guess is it was immediate. As soon as the guy figured out the cost of following Christ, he walked away sad because he was never going to give up his riches. Jesus simply goes to the very first commandment, the one that says, Have no other gods before me, finds him guilty of loving and living for his wealth and his possessions more than God, and says, You're guilty of idolatry, and if you want me, you've got to leave it all behind. And he goes, mm, Too expensive. And he doesn't follow Christ. God doesn't grade on a curve. If you're going to choose the the law, then you've got to be perfect. Eternal life, if it's based on our ability to do it all right, then we got serious, serious problems, right? Because we can't do it. In fact, by, by the way, the only way anybody ever could suggest that we could fix our own problem means that you're confused about some serious big topics. One is you're confused about sin. You have the wrong view of sin. You think sin isn't that bad. Like it's an unintentional mistake or it's not that gory to God. You've taken sin from what the Bible says about sin and you've shrunk it to, uh, to something like a, an oops, unintentional mistake, didn't mean to thing. And yet the Bible says, no, you're dark and you're twisted and you're sick. The only way you could get ever to the place of thinking that you could fix your own problem is to somehow have a wrong view of you, to think that you're the exception to the rules of Scripture. You're the one that's not dead in your sins and transgressions. You have some bit of life, even a little bit of life, and you can sort it out with that little kernel. And this, this one's probably more damning than anything else, and that is you have a wrong view of God, that God isn't that holy, and he doesn't care that much about sin. He's more like you than he is like him, and so he's going to understand that you meant well. He's going to understand your circumstances and that everybody else is a jerk and you're the one just trying to do it right. He's going to know that, right? Well, You can't compromise how God defines himself. Absolutely perfect and precise in his judgments. He is holy and he hates sin with a holy hatred. So, Paul says, you can't keep the law. Nobody's perfect enough. Here's another thing that salvation isn't. It's not looking for some extraordinary work or some kind of miracle. Look at verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now hold your finger right there in Romans, and I want you to flip to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to tell you where this what I would call Paul's loose translation of chapter thirty comes from, this one little section, verses eleven through fourteen of Deuteronomy, chapter thirty. We're going to read it and I'll just make a point here. This is Moses talking to God's people. For this commandment that I command you today it is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, you've got to understand something here. Mo- Moses is God's man. God's people were enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. God delivers uh, them this leader called Moses. Moses exits them out of that slavery. And every time Moses speaks and every time there's some kind of cataclysmic moment, God shows up in miraculous ways. Moses carries the staff and God shows up, right? And my guess, this is the end of Moses' leadership. He's wrapping it up. He's handing off the baton to the next guy. My guess is the people of Israel going, okay, wait, wait, where's the next magic man? We can't do this on our own. We need the next guy who can sh- have God show up like that. Where, where is he? And so Moses preaches this little section to his people saying, you don't need anything else. You don't need magic and miracles from God. You've got the law. You've got the law that reveals the gospel that Jesus says right here in you. It's in, it's in your mouth. It's in your ears. It's in your heart. It's near to you. And there are some people who would look at the, the gospel of Christ and say, it's not enough, that the word's not enough. The scriptures aren't enough. I need something else. I need an extra special revelation, right? And there are people, by the way, who will sell that. They write books on stuff like that, right? I've got something more that you need, something that will unlock the combination between sin and a, and a savior. And so, um, but here's his point. You don't need an extra special word. That's what Paul said in, in Romans 4, justification That Abraham believed in, that was credited righteousness, was based on on that truth, right? And that's that's not an extra word; it's the same word. It doesn't require an extra work that needs to be done. In fact, just the proverbial language here and what Paul then paraphrases in in this uh, chapter ten. Um, of ascending and descending into heaven, into the abyss, was clearly the impossible. So he's saying you don't need to go up or down. You need to go anywhere. You don't need to perceive or pursue some kind of magic or some kind of miracle as, uh, to add to Jesus alone. You've got the gospel. You've got the word of God. It's all that you need right, right now. So salvation isn't being good enough. Salvation isn't having something extra it's near you. How near? Here's what he says in verses 9 and 10. This is what salvation is. Ready? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's it say? You'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul tells us two things that salvation is: it's confessing Jesus is Lord and believing in the resurrection. Let's let's unpack these things. Um it doesn't sound to me at first blush that confessing him as Lord is that complicated. It more or less sounds like I have to formulate some words, a sentence, and say it out loud, or that's what it means to confess. But, but that's not the biblical interpretation of confession. It is trusting and believing in the reality of Christ. And in, in other words, let me just say it this way. It's allegiance to him, not a sentence. That's what confessing is. It's a decision you make to follow. It's a decision to trust. And, and believe. And so, here's, here's a couple ways to see uh, the depth of that phrase. It is, to confess him as Lord means acknowledging Jesus as the one and only God, the creator, sustainer of all. In fact, I- in fact, there's only one person that can have the title Lord, and it's reserved for God himself alone, and that's what Jesus is saying. You need to confess him as God. And this is where Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, separates itself from all other religions in the world, and that's what they think about Jesus. Some would say he's a prophet and a teacher. Some say he's a wise guy. Some would say he was a great man. Nobody says he was God. The Bible does. And that's what you confess, that he was, he was God, the one and only. You also have to acknowledge that he is Savior. That's what it means to confess him, that he is His sacrifice on the cross was satisfactory for God. That those songs we sing, that he paid it all. You really believe that, that there is no other need. There's no other way. There's no other atonement. God is not looking for another payment for your sin. Jesus alone bore it all and satisfied God's righteous standard for for your life. That's what it means to confess him. It also means that you uh, acknowledge him as the ruler of your life. Now, this, this happens over our lifetime, but you have to at least recognize the fact that he has all authority over everything. Your possessions and your money and your wife and your husband and your kids and your career and your aspirations. He's in charge of everything. He uh, is the supreme one. He is king. No questions asked. That's what it means to confess him as Lord. And and just to make it really clear, in in Paul's day, everyone knew what that meant. Now, we got to spend some time getting close to this here, but in Paul's day, to follow him as Lord meant that you probably were going to pay for it, It meant you're going to die. They killed Jesus, and they're coming after the church, and they're scattered all over the place, running for the hills, and it's because they have Jesus as Lord. The cost of following Christ was clear and blatant then. In our day, you can just simply add Jesus to what you already have, no harm, no foul. But that's not how the gospel is offered to us, confessing him as Lord. The other thing that that Paul says here about um, our confession is also believing in the resurrection. Verse 9 makes it clear. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let me split that sentence in two. Believe in your heart and God raised him from the dead. Um, When you think about believing in your heart, most of us think about just what we think in our head about these facts. And yet, there is way more to it than that. Paul's point is that when it comes to Christ and what he claims and what he commands, it requires us being sold out to such a degree that you're willing to bet your life on it. Now, I don't remember uh, my own conversion if I had to f- formulate that sentence, in my, but I've learned it since, that you, you do really have to be willing to sell out. Um, I I shared this illustration at summer camp, so if you're a student, forgive me, I'm just going to repeat it, but when I was a uh, 16-year-old high schooler or whatever, I lived in a farming community, and farms were going out of business fast, okay, and uh, on the corners of where I lived, there were farms, empty barns and silos, you know what a silo is? And, and there was a silo, particularly just down the street, that my buddy and I, we'd go down there and climb that thing and sit on top of it, 50 feet or so up in the air. And we came to the brainstorm, you know, genius stroke of saying, "Well, what if we repelled down this thing? That'd be fun. So I don't know anything about repelling, but I thought it'd be fun, so I went home. And I went looking around in my dad's garage, and I was looking for rope. Any rope would do. It didn't matter to me. Um... Skinny rope, thick rope, old rope, new rope, didn't matter. And so I found everything that looked like a rope, and I tied it all together, okay? And I had all this, this hodgepodge of, of rope, and I went to the top of this 50-foot silo, and I tied on, and I threw myself over the edge, okay? That's what it means to sell out. <laughs> now, I was dead wrong about the rope, but I believed. Do you understand? I fell 50 feet, and God spared my life at that moment, but... That's a, that's a great example of what the world does. They sell out for things that could never hold them, ever. But to trust in Christ and his resurrection is to bet your life on it, is to be willing to, to bet your life on that. It's not just agreeing with some facts about who Jesus is and, and what he said, it's betting your life on Christ. It means to submit to Christ when his ways are different than your ways. It means to submit to Christ when the world pushes back on the Jesus in you and you suffer for Christ's sake. It means that if you have to be all alone with Christ and have the world reject you, it means standing there okay because you have, you have the author of life who is your friend. The second phrase that he says there in uh, verse 9 is that we have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, I ask myself the question, why didn't Paul suggest other things to believe about Jesus? For instance, uh, you have to believe that he died for you. He didn't say that. Or you have to believe that he was born of a virgin. He didn't say that. Or you have to believe in his miracles or that he could do miracles. He didn't say that. He simply honed in on the re- resurrection. Why? Real simple. Because the resurrection is proof. The resurrection is proof that all these claims of Christ can be counted on. That his offer of salvation can be trusted, it proves him to be the Savior of men's sins. Right? Uh, James Boyce wrote a couple of paragraphs that I think are poignant. I'm just going to read them. So, so listen to this. This is what he says about the resurrection and what it says. Okay. The resurrection proves many things. It proves that there is a God and that God, the God of the Bible, is the true and only God. That, That Jesus was a teacher sent from God and that Jesus was inerrant in his teachings and spoke the very words of God. That Jesus is the son of God. That there is a day of judgment coming. That every believer in Christ is justified from all sin. That all who are united to Christ by faith will live again and that Christians can have victory over sin. But chiefly the resurrection proves that every believer in Christ is justified from his sin. As Romans 4.25 flatly declares, he, that is Jesus, has delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection is God's proof that the penalty for our transgressions has been fully paid by Christ. When Jesus was on the earth, he said that he would die for the sins of others. The time for the crucifixion came and he did die. But the question remained, was his death fully adequate for our sins? Did God accept his atonement We know that if Jesus had sinned, however slightly, his death could not atone for his own sin, let alone the sin of others. For three days, the question remained unanswered. The body of Jesus lay in the cold Judean tomb. The long-anticipated hour came. The breath of God swept through the sepulcher, and Jesus rose to appear to his followers and later to ascend to the right hand of the Father. By this means, God declared to the entire universe, I have accepted the atonement of my son. That's why Jesus said you've got to believe in the resurrection. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have any hope for salvation. He didn't pay for sin. He is not a satisfactory payment for your sin. God is not satisfied. It is not over if you don't believe in the resurrection. You just have a man who died. So, let me finish with this. Verses 10 and 13, one small little word or phrase here. Back up to verse 9, it's actually verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, now say it out loud, you will be what? Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Right? Saved from what? Now, you've got to understand this. There are churches all over our world who are preaching that God wants you wealthy and healthy and happy and whole. And that is not the salvation of Christ. That is not what he died to give you. He died to give dead people life. Right? You, you got more issues than that if you believe that somehow God decided to make you happy. The scriptures say, Paul, writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he says, everyone who wants to live godly will be persecuted. Now, that's a promise they don't preach. But that's the reality of it. Following Christ doesn't mean things are going to go well. There's still the remnant of sin. There's still sin in other people and there's sin in us and there's bad things and there's sickness and all that kind of stuff that God will make right one day. But here's what he's talking about. Saved from what? Say it. Sin. And that's true, but I'm going to clarify that. That's a true statement. We are saved from our sin. But can I give you something bigger to think about? What we're really saved from is God. Because God is the problem of sin. If there is no God and he's not holy, who cares? If God is just indifferent towards sin, who cares? The baddest guy wins, Right? I can do whatever. There is no standard. There's no, there's no justice. There's no wrath of God. Nothing being stored up. The problem with my failure is I have to a, face a holy God. That's the terror of sin. And God won't overlook it. He won't say, never mind. He stores copious notes on everything we've done. He sees my motives and my intentions. That's my problem. God's my problem. So here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that God was so right about sin that he was willing to come to this earth and become like a man to bear the weight and wrath of his own judgment for my failures so that you and I will not be judged anymore. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You're saved from from God for certain. But there's another aspect to this that we got to get. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For those who trust in Christ, we avoid shame. Um, Boyce used four words or four thoughts to describe the kind of shame that we get to avoid as believers. That the world will have to suffer if they don't trust in Christ. And one is acute disappointment. In other words, this is what it means. It means... um, When you find out at the last day that everything you've trusted in was a sham and it can't hold you up. The shame of finding out you were wrong. It's the shame that every person who doesn't trust in Christ will face one day before the Father. It is every Mormon and every Muslim. It's every atheist. It's every moral person. It's every church person in the world who thinks that apart from Christ they can make it on their own. They will stand before God and find out at that moment, I was wrong. I don't know anything. And what I put my life to and what I thought about, I, I, it doesn't matter. It failed me. But here's what we know, church. The gospel never disappoints. It will never let you down. And that's the reality of it. The other thing that this shame um, that we avoid is, is being confounded. In, in, in other words, there's a day coming for those who don't trust in Christ. They'll be so exposed that there's nothing to say. There's no defense to make. There's no words to open Uh, your mouth on, you're just silent. Silent and guilty. And here's what we know from the scriptures that Jesus bore that shame. Silent before his accusers. For us. There's another part to shame that the church gets to avoid but the rest of the world will have to deal with and that is exposure the shame that comes when everything is exposed and out in the open. The shame of everybody knowing everything you've done, every reason why you've done it, and all the things you thought you kept hidden in secret, it's out in the open, all of it, in front of a holy God who sees it, that shame. There's the shame of uh, disgrace when you realize you're dead wrong and there's no backing up. For those who trust in Christ, we will not be put to shame. Now here's a funny funny little ironic twist. He did promise us that the world would treat us as fools for trusting in Christ, but one day we will experience the, the relationship with Christ and the world will suffer loss at that moment. They will stand ashamed of being wrong. So we've seen what, what salvation isn't, we've seen what it is, but let me finish with one last question. Who's it for? Who's it for? Verse, uh, verses uh, 11 through 13 for the scripture says everyone everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call in his name for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved who is it for? say it do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you're listening because here's what the scriptures tell us. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been or the struggles you continue to struggle with. It it does not matter if you're weak or strong or if you're super smart or extremely common. It does not matter if you're young or old or moral or you're a train wreck. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a church person. All who come to Jesus by faith will be saved. That's what this story is. And some of you thought that your righteousness was good enough, and I'm telling you right now, lay lay it down and trust in Christ. And some of you have avoided Christ for so long. Lay that down and trust in Christ because everybody who wants him can have him. And this is that complex, kind of mind-blowing second aspect of God's sovereignty and salvation is that ultimately he holds you accountable for what you decided about Jesus. Will you have him? That's the only question any man needs to ever wrestle with. Do I see myself clearly from what the scripture says about my problem? I am the sinner and the wretch the song's about. And will I receive God's solution who is Christ? And if you'll have him, he'll be your savior. And shame won't be yours. And you'll have eternal life. He'll bring joy in spite of circumstances forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Before I pray, just, I I know, I pray at least that there are some in here wrestling with the claims of Christ and maybe, maybe what do I want? Do you want Christ? You can acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. You can acknowledge him right now that his, his death on the cross was the payment for your sin. You can acknowledge that he can make you new and you can acknowledge him as the master of your life. And this is between you and God. And if you trust him right now, you have God's promise that you will be saved. God, I thank you for the gospel. It never, ever gets old. The good news that you saved uh, sinners sinners like us, that nothing, nothing will separate us, that there is no condemnation and to work in um, your will and your power in our life to bring yourself glory. God, I thank you for that truth, but I do pray for those in here who have yet to uh, finish this discussion with you. God, would you draw them to yourself. Make it irresistible today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.